0: Sunday, everybody. We are very, very glad you're here. But I'm having a bit of a problem this morning, if I'm honest. This is the final message in our series on the book of Job called Dust and Ashes. We've been walking through the text of this book for like eight weeks now. We've covered so much ground. And when we were lining out the calendar for this series, I picked today as the Sunday that we were going to end this particular series. And in August, we've got some other stuff that's planned. But I'm struggling because even though there are only 10 verses left, in the entire book of Job that we haven't talked about yet. I've got about 10 sermons left that I wanna preach from this very short passage. That is not an exaggeration. I really have like 10 messages. Let me show you, okay? Let me show you all the sermons that I can't preach to you. Job chapter number 42, verse seven (laughs) I want you, You're you going to get like 11 sermons today, just so you know, okay? I, I want you to notice what verse number seven says. Remember, Job's this guy. He's gone through great tragedy. His life was very blessed, but he lost everything in the middle of all of his tragedy and heartache. His friends show up. His friends comfort and console him for like six verses, and then they start confronting him and lecturing him, and they get into this big argument about whether or not Job must have sinned to cause all of these problems that God has sent his way, and they're like, you're responsible, Job, and Job's like, like, I'm a good guy, I didn't do anything. God can show up and vindicate me, and God does show up. We've talked about that over the last few weeks. In verse number seven of chapter 42, God is gonna turn his attention from speaking directly to Job and instead he's gonna talk to Job's friends. So we read here, after the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Tamanite, I am angry with you and your two friends for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. You know, I would love to preach a sermon to you reminding you that God does in fact get angry. Throughout the scriptures, God actually gets angry. Now, uh, we actually did preach this sermon about four years ago. I don't know if you remember this or not. We did a sermon series called Four Things I Wish You Knew About God. And one of the messages in that series was God gets angry. We don't like the idea of an angry God because we associate anger with human anger. That's the only perspective we have. So we get angry over traffic and we get angry over petty slights and injustices and things like that. But we talked in that sermon series about how God gets angry over grave injustices. the things that he gets angry over, and the the ways in which God expresses his anger are actually good and necessary, and we should even follow his example. So what we're going to do this week is we're actually going to repost that particular sermon in our podcast feed, so if you've forgotten it or you never got a chance to listen to it, you can learn a little bit about how and why God gets angry. I'd love to preach that sermon to you today, but I don't have time. I could preach you an entire sermon from verse number eight. God says to to Eliphaz and, and the rest of his friends, so take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer on your behalf. I will not treat you as you deserve for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. I would love to preach another sermon to you on how Job is a picture, a type and a shadow of Jesus. That Jesus intercedes for us as his friends, just like Job did here in this verse. And God says, I will not deal with you, Daniel, as you deserve, because Jesus has interceded. His ministry on your behalf means that you are gonna experience my grace and mercy. I would love to preach that sermon, but I already did in week two. So go back and listen if you missed that one. Hey, I could preach to you a whole sermon out of verse number 10. In verse 10, we read, when Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. It was when Job prayed for his friends that the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Oh, I wish I had time to preach about how in God's upside down kingdom, we get ahead by getting behind, that the last will be first and the first will be last, that if we want to experience God's blessing and his favor as his people, you know what we do? We selflessly serve. Even those who have wronged us, even our enemies who told us it's all your fault, you're the one who's responsible, you dirty, rotten sinner, get right or get left. Even those people, We serve them, we love them, we bless them. And it is because of that attitude that we experience God's favor. Oh, I wish I could preach that whole sermon, but I don't have time. How about verse 11? Verse 11 says, Then all his brothers, all Job's brothers and sisters and former friends came and feasted with him in his home, and they consoled him and comforted him because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him, and each of them brought Job a gift of money and a gold ring. I would love to take you to the Proverbs and show you how real friends are revealed on your worst days, not your best days. Where were all of these family and friends the last 30 some odd chapters? When Job needed them the most, they were nowhere to be found. But once God restored his fortunes, the friends are like, oh, hey, Job, how you been, man? It's great to see you. Let's get dinner, right? Oh, I don't have time for that sermon though. I could preach to you from chapter 12. Ooh, of all the sermons I'm not gonna preach, this is the one I probably wanna preach the most. The Bible says, so the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. If you pay close attention, that's an exact doubling of all of the numbers that we saw way back in chapter number one. I would love to speak to the older millennials and the Gen Xers in the crowd. Those of you that wake up each morning and you're like, oh, I miss the glory days. Back when I was in high school, ooh, I was fine. I was popular. Whole life ahead of me. I knew that everything was going to go right for me. But here I am in midlife and things have not turned out the way that I thought they would. I got to put on eye cream every single night. <laughs> I can't fit into those clothes anymore. Oh, I wish that the remaining years were as good as the years that I already had. No, no, no. I'd love to remind you that God blessed Job more in the second half of his life than the first half. You think your best days are behind you, but in Jesus, your best days are always ahead of you. I would love to preach that message to myself, but I don't have time. (laughs) I could preach to you from Job 13 to 15. He also, God also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. And he named his first daughter Jemima. She went on to make some really good syrup. <laughs> he named the second daughter Keziah. We've got some Kezias in the church. I was, That's a biblical name. I didn't even know it. Pretty cool. And he named the third daughter Karen. <laughs> now look, I wanted to make jokes here. But I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to say to the Karens in our congregation, I am so sorry for what our culture has done to your name. It is not right. It's unfair. So I'm just going to say, bless you, sister. (laughs) In all the land, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job, and their father put them into his will right along with their brothers. I could preach an entire message about how this epilogue greatly highlights Job's daughters and says basically nothing about the sons. I would love to point out that contrary to Hebrew practice and contrary to pagan practice in the day, Job actually gave his daughters an equal share of the inheritance right alongside their brothers. It's almost like wherever God's blessing is found, women are elevated and treated as the equals of men. I wish I had time to preach a message like that, but the last time I did, they kicked us out of our denomination, so I'm not going to do it today. (laughs) Not going to do it. I could preach to you an entire sermon from verses 16 and 17, the conclusion of Job 42. We're told Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren, and in verse 17, we read, then he died an old man who had lived a long and full life. I would love to preach to you about how we should judge a successful life. How most people are chasing a good life or an easy life, but God desires to give us a full life, a satisfying life, life overflowing. But hear me now, that kind of life is only possible if God allows us to experience the full breadth of human existence. It is only in knowing the highs and the lows that we can grow and mature and prosper the way that God wants us to. Job said it himself in chapter two, verse 10. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? There's some of us that think God should only bless me He should never withhold any bad or any good. I should never experience anything bad at his hand. But we read in the book of Job that that is not the kind of relationship that God offers to us. I wish I could preach all of these sermons, honestly, but I gotta narrow it down. I gotta land the plane, okay? Because we have other stuff we wanna get to in August. So what I wanna do as we kind of summarize the conclusion here, the last 10 chapters, 10 (laughs) 10 verses uh, from chapter 42, I wanna give you four wrong ways to read the last chapter in the book of Job. Four wrong ways, four ways that we typically understand or view the conclusion from the book of Job, and you may even believe these four things, but they're not correct. They're in, they're untrue. Four ways. Now, I told you all along, most people, including most Christians, actually misunderstand the book of Job. We draw the wrong conclusions, we think it's teaching us the wrong points. Very often, it's the exact opposite of what our common ideas about the book of Job uh, say that is actually true. And this is certainly the reality when we look at the conclusion of the book of Job. So I'm going to give you four wrong ways to understand chapter 42. I wonder if you have ever looked at this story through these incorrect lenses. Firstly, chapter 42 is not a storybook ending. Chapter 42 is not a storybook ending. See, when we read storybooks to our children... When we retell the fairy tales that we've been sharing for generations, when we watch every single Disney and Pixar movie that's ever been made, they all end in exactly the same way. Either they literally use these words or it is communicated in principle, if nothing else. At the end of the movie, it's basically like, and they all lived? See, you know it as well as I do. In every storybook tale, in every fairy tale, they all lived happily ever after. We have these characters and they go through this drama and they have these problems and it looks like they're going to lose, but in the end they triumph, the princess gets the prince, everything is okay, and they all live happily ever after after. We say things like all's well that ends well, meaning essentially, it doesn't really matter what happened early in the story as long as it finalizes in a happy place, then it's a happy story. Baloney. Okay? That's not reality. Can we honestly say that Joey uh, Joey Job had a fairy tale ending? Joey fairy and Job, I combine those two words. Um, Job had a fairy tale ending? Think about this. We do read that Job gained twice as much wealth, twice as much business, a better reputation in chapter 42 than he had in chapter one. We read that God, he restores his family. He gains the exact number of sons and daughters that he had lost. In every way you could measure it, Job is more blessed later in life than he was at the start. But do you believe for a moment that Job was looking at his life in chapter 42 saying, this is perfect. All's well that ends well. No. 10 days a year, he had to celebrate, remember, commemorate the birthday of one of his sons or daughters who died. One day, every single year, Job had to live on the anniversary of the tornado that destroyed the house and killed all 10 of his children at once. Do you think that Job went through his life saying, ah, everything's cool? No, Job carried scars, he carried trauma. Around, I know he loved his blessing. He was grateful for the for the new business, the the reversal and restoration restoration of his fortunes. He would. I know he loved every single son and daughter that God gave him later in life. But he never got over his grief. There's no way. If you've ever experienced loss at this level, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If Job were alive in modern times, we would say, "Bro, you have PTSD. You need to go see a counselor." There is no way you're handling this in a healthy way. You need some help. And we would have gotten it because we know that just because a story ends well doesn't mean that all the pain and the heartache can just be forgotten. Many of you are here. And maybe you haven't quite experienced the same level of loss as Job, but you've had the grief of losing a loved one or the death of a dream or the breaking of a relationship. And you still carry the wounds. It's years in the past and yet it still hurts. There's nothing wrong with that. That's normal. You're not a weak Christian. You're not a sinner because you still hurt over the scars that life has left you. Job definitely experienced those exact same things. He did not get a storybook ending. It's not as perfect as these last 10 verses might lead you to believe if you read it too superficially. Secondly, chapter 42 is not a reward. Chapter 42 is not a reward. Now, this is one that many of you probably believe. You, you, tell, you read the story and you kind of come up with a framework in your mind in which you say, Job was a righteous man. Then he suffered and lost all of these things unfairly and because he kept his faith in God during all of those hard days, because he never wavered in his faith and belief in the Father, that when we get to chapter 42, God says, I'm gonna reward you for staying faithful during that time. That's the story in the narrative that we often tell when we read 42. We say chapter 42 is a reward for everything that Job endured from chapters one to chapter 41. Baloney. I'm gonna say baloney a lot, okay? Just so you know, that's not true. Okay. We know this for a few different reasons. Number one, we've talked about this many times. Job didn't stay faithful to God during this whole period. Go back and read his speeches, particularly chapter 19. If you just want one place to go to and kind of get a sense of how he talks throughout his discussions and conversations, go to chapter 19, read the things that Job says about God. He says, God has abandoned me. God is, uh, for, he has forsaken me. He's a bully. He's being mean to me. He's not good. God needs to show up and answer for his crimes. That's just chapter 19. So, Job, he goes on this roller coaster of emotions where sometimes he says these beautiful things about his confidence and faith in God, and other times he's saying blasphemy. So, this can't merely be a reward because Job got it right, because he didn't get it right. Like all of us, his response to life's difficulties, it was a mixed bag. He said some good things, he said some bad things, he did some right, he did some wrong. Even in this last um, chapter, when God says to the friends, you have not spoken about me accurately as Job has, we know that God is not referring in that moment to everything Job said throughout the book because God chastises him for the stuff he says earlier. When God says, Job has spoken accurately about me, you know what he's referring to? He's referring only to that last speech that Job gives in chapter 42. If you remember, we talked about it last week. Job says, "Uh, God, I realize that I thought I understood you. And so I spoke out of ignorance. But now I've seen you with my own eyes. And so I shut my mouth. I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Repentance. God says, now you've spoken accurately, Job. So this was not a reward for Job getting it right because he didn't. Also, if you pay really close attention to the text, there is nothing in these verses at all that indicates that God is rewarding Job for being faithful. Nothing in the text. So you can go back and read it for yourself when he says, uh, the Lord blessed Job, double what he was blessed early on. The Lord was with Job. He gave him this and this and this. None of it says God did those things because Job stayed faithful when his friends didn't. There's no indication of that in the text whatsoever. Now, this might raise a question in your mind. And in fact, it did. Uh, There was a gentleman who was here in the service a, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this. Remember, we said, God doesn't operate according to the law of karma in which he punishes us for every bad deed and he rewards us for every good. Instead, he operates according to a principle of grace in which we get good that we don't deserve and he withholds bad that we do deserve. After that message, there was a guy that messaged me online And he said, so are you telling me there's no correlation, there's no relationship between our behavior and God's blessing? Are you saying that God never rewards obedience? Because Dan, I'm pretty sure I've heard you stand up and say, like, if you will follow God, you will experience the best life possible. So what gives? And I told him, and I tell to you today as well, I'm not saying there's no relationship between our behavior and God's blessing. What I'm saying is you're never gonna be able to fully understand. the relationship between your behavior and god's blessing okay the reason for that is if god operated according to that law of karma in which we received a one-to-one ratio we do good we get blessed we do bad we get cursed if we operated that way or god operated that way with us we would end up with a transactional relationship with him I would start to say, oh, so if I follow what the verse says, I get blessed. So I start being obedient so that I can have blessing. And I'll go to God and I'll say, hey, God, now, wait a sec. I did what you told me to do. You owe me. We had a deal. I was going to be obedient and you were going to bless me. Give me my blessing, please. It becomes manipulative. We start doing the right things for the wrong reasons, which makes them the wrong thing. We could flip it around and very easily, thankfully because of God's character, he would never do this, but very easily God could use reward and blessing in order to manipulate us in order to get the right behavior. And he could say, you better behave. If you step out of line, I'm gonna squash you like a bug. And if you're good, then I'll bless you and reward you. But he doesn't want that kind of transactional relationship with us, okay? What I told this gentleman that uh, had contacted me after the service is that we're never going to understand the relationship between our behavior and God's blessing. What we can't say is that every good thing I have is a reward for the good I've done and every bad thing that happens to me is a punishment. That's what Job's friends said for 30 chapters and they were wrong. Instead, what I told him, is you have some good things in your life that you possess because you made wise choices earlier in your life. You did the right thing and it's not like God is directly rewarding you for it or anything like that. It's just like you did what was right. So for instance, maybe um, you decided that for the last 10 years, you were gonna live on 95% of your income, which means you've got 5% each year that's tucked away in savings. Smart. Because when life gets hard and suddenly the car breaks down or you need a new washing machine or you have an unexpected baby show up or whatever the case may be, you have margin, right? That is simply the result of God designing the world in such a way that if you make wise choices, you will usually experience good things as a result. That's one reason you have good things in your life. Another reason you have good things in your life is that God has chosen to reward you for your obedience. This absolutely does happen. If he calls his people to do something, thing, he may choose as a response to show and shower his favor on you. And then the third reason that you have good things is because God loves you even when you're not lovable. That God blesses you even when you do not deserve to be blessed. Do you realize this is what the definition of the word grace means? Grace is God's unmerited favor, unearned blessings. God chooses to bless us even when we don't deserve it. So here's what I want you to consider. The greatest blessing you have in your entire life is your salvation. What did you do to earn your salvation? nothing. That's the whole point of the gospel. We can't earn our salvation. It is simply God giving us his unmerited favor and grace. So think about any blessing you have in your life. I don't care which one. You can choose your kids, your husband, your your job, the city that you live in, the country you were born. I don't care. Your citizenship, whatever. Choose any blessing that you want to consider. And I want you to tell me for certain that that is either The result of a wise choice you made when you were 22 years old. Or it is God rewarding you for being obedient, or it is his unmerited favor that you did not deserve. Which of those three is true? I guarantee you, you cannot say for certain on anything except your salvation, that's the only one. So here's the thing. God will bless us for any number of reasons. We have to be so careful that we don't start to say to ourselves, oh, this good thing that I have, I earn this. I deserve this. This is mine. What does Ephesians chapter number two tell us? That our salvation is a gift of God's grace. It doesn't come about because of our works. Why? So that no one can boast. We don't Earn every blessing we have. And every bad thing that comes your way is not a curse from God for doing some secret sin in the past that you need to root out and confess. God doesn't operate in such a transactional way. So chapter 42, the ending of Job's story, it is not a reward for his faithfulness in all the things that he had to endure. Instead, my guess is based on the reading of this text, it is simply God being good to one of his children. That's it. So chapter 42 is not a reward and it's not a promise of a reward for us. In fact, we could say it this way. Chapter 42, this is another wrong way to read it. Chapter 42 is not a guarantee. Chapter 42 is not a guarantee. Now there are some of you that are here and because of your particular theological persuasion, maybe your cultural background, maybe what you heard growing up, whatever the case may be, um, you have come to believe that God's blessing will always look like health and wealth and prosperity? Lovingly baloney, okay? Here's how I know that that's not true. I do believe that God wants to bless you. I do believe that he wants you to prosper, but God's definition of prosperity is different than our world's definition of prosperity. You believe in Instagram prosperity. God believes in eternal prosperity, and that means the ways in which he's going to prosper you are going to look differently than the influencers you see on Instagram that you want to emulate so badly. God wants to prosper you. He wants to mature you. But some of the prosperity that he wants to bring about in your life can only be experienced. It can only become a reality when you go through hardship and tragedy. It's only when we go through the crucible that we come out more refined. So yes, I believe in a prosperity theology, but that prosperity is defined by God in the scripture and nobody on YouTube, okay? It's not a guarantee. This chapter 42, chapter 42 is the way Job's story ended. I don't have a clue if it's how your story is going to end. God decided to restore Job's fortunes, but do you realize God in his sovereignty does not restore everyone's fortunes? Not everyone gets healed. Not everyone experiences a doubling and a multiplication of everything that they might have lost in life. Not everyone receives that kind of blessing. Chapter 42 is not a guarantee, it's not a proof text that if you stay faithful, God is going to double your blessing. That's just not how it works. In fact, The entirety of the book of Job is a reminder that God does not operate according, he doesn't operate according to that law of karma. Instead, it's a principle of grace in which he freely gives and he freely withholds for his own eternal purposes that we're never going to fully understand. Chapter 42 is not a guarantee. Can I tell you also, chapter 42 is not the end. This is the the final misperception about the story of Job. Chapter 42 certainly seems like the end of the story of Job, right? We we read there in, in verse number 16 that Job lived 140 years after that, seeing four generations of children and grandchildren. Then he died an old man who had lived a long, full life. That sounds like the end of Job's story, right? Baloney. Although chapter 42, verse 17 represents the end of the book of Job, although chapter 42, verse 17 represents the end of Job's earthly life, it does not mean the end of his eternal life. You see, Job's story continues in chapter 43, verse 1. Now, you might be pulling out your Bible at this point, and you're like, what Bible are you reading from, pastor? You got one of those fancy Bibles that's got extra pages in them? I don't have a chapter 43, I know. I'm not saying literally chapter 43. What I'm saying is chapter 43 represents the promise that every believer has. That when we close our eyes in this world, we will, based on the promises of Jesus, open our eyes in eternity. Every one of us is going to have a chapter 42, verse 17. And in Jesus, every one of us can have a chapter 43, verse 1. You know, Job anticipated this very moment himself. He said, very famous, two very famous verses that we've never covered in this series so far. He said, in chapter 19, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. Even after my body has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, Job says, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. How my heart yearns within me for that day. It's precisely because of this confidence that Job could say what is probably the most famous and well-known verse in the entire book. He says, though God slay me, yet will I trust him. God could take everything. He could take my life. One day he will. I will still trust him. Why? Because chapter 42 verse 17 is not the end of Job's story. Job's story continues in chapter 43, verse one. In fact, we could say this, despite all of the amazing and wonderful blessings that Job experienced at the end of chapter 42, his greatest blessings didn't start until chapter 43, verse one. My friends, I cannot predict what your chapter 42 is gonna look like. You will have one, and I don't know if it's gonna be the restoration and multiplication of everything you might've lost in this life. I don't know. If God is for his own reasons and his own sovereignty, gonna choose to not restore everything that you might have lost in this life. Your chapter 42, it might involve the doubling of your wealth or it might involve the permanent loss of your health. Everybody's 42 is gonna look different. But in Jesus, every one of us can have. uh, Chapter 43, verse one. This is why Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Yeah. Can I paraphrase our savior for just a moment? He says, y'all are so worried about chapter 42. You're so consumed with how your story's gonna turn out. What blessings are you going to have? How can I count the end of my life versus the start of my life? How I expected my life to go versus the way that my life actually went. You're so worried about what happens in the last 10 verses of your chapter 42, but your greatest blessings won't even begin until you experience chapter 43, verse 1. The Apostle Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter number 2 verses 9 and 10. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Too often, preachers stop right there, Christians stop right there, and they're like, ooh, it's gonna be so good, I can't even picture it. Read the next verse. The next verse says, but it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit, for his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. I cannot tell you what your chapter 42 is gonna look like. I can show you what your chapter 43 looks like. I don't know what your last days are gonna entail, but I know what your eternity is gonna entail because the spirit of God has revealed it to us. He has promised it to us. And so we can live our lives based on that promise, not worried about 42, but in hope of 43. Yes. This is why Matthew nineteen twenty-five, a verse that's very near and dear to the Sueza hearts. Jesus says, anyone who is lost houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. Yeah. This is why the apostle Paul could say so triumphantly in Romans chapter number eight, verse 18, I am confident that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Chapter 42, verses 10 to 17 are nothing compared to chapter 43 in verse one. My friends, the bottom line is that for Christians, things can go badly, but they cannot end badly. Chapters one to 42 might be rough. They might involve a lot of loss. They might involve a lot of heartache and pain, but in Jesus, although they might go badly, they will never end end badly because verse 17 is not the last word chapter 43 verse 1 is the last word john eleven twenty-five 25 is the last word even if you die yet will you live if you are found in jesus hmm. it's not a fairy tale ending it's not a reward ending it's not a guaranteed ending heck chapter 42 is not even the ending now I had written this entire message on Thursday of this week and it ended this exact same way. And I, in my mind, I was like, ooh, this is good stuff, Dan. Yeah, way to go, man. They're gonna, they're gonna love this. This is gonna be such a blessing to people. But I gotta be honest with you, like it was up here. I was kind of like, I know this is right. I know this is true. We need to remember the hope of glory, the hope of eternity that we carry around every single day. Like, yeah. And then on Saturday morning, we learned that our brother and church member, Dotan Ajabate passed away. He went to be with Jesus after battling cancer for quite a while. And suddenly all the stuff that just seemed, ooh, this is so good here, it, it just hit me here. And I considered the fact that Dotan's chapter 42 didn't go the way that he expected it to. Didn't go the way that I expected it to. Boy, we prayed hard for him and trusted God for his healing. We anointed him and called for the elders of the church the way the book of James tells us to. and We were full of faith and full of confidence, but God had a different ending in store for Doton in chapter 42. But just as surely, as Job closed his eyes and then reopened them in chapter 43, Doton opened his eyes Saturday morning and beheld the face of his Savior. He received the reward of a life well-lived, committed to Jesus in faith, and he is having a better day than he has ever had in his entire life. The greatest blessings that my brother will ever experience didn't begin until Saturday morning. This morning, we want to remember and honor Doton's life. He was a member of our prayer team. Many of you found him after services and you said, Doton, I've got a need. Could you pray for me? And he agreed with you in faith and he interceded on your behalf. He was a, a group leader. Many of you sat in his alpha group and you were uh, exposed to the, to the truths of the faith and maybe grew as a result of his ministry and service. And we, we are so grateful for Doton and his life. We celebrate him. And we think it would be appropriate to just pause as a church body and to pray for his family, his wife, Dami, his daughter, Dara, his son Deolu, and to, to lift them to the Lord and ask him to bring great peace, comfort, and hope in the middle of their difficulty and tragedy. We don't pray for Doton. He doesn't need it. Doton's up there praying for us. He's like, whoo, God, haste the day that they get to join me up here. But I think it would be wise, it would be appropriate if we took a moment and individually, where you're seated, where you're seated, um, between you and Lord in the silence, uh, between you and the Lord in the silence of your seat, if we just interceded on behalf of our sister and Doton's family. Our Father, we come to you with heavy hearts today. Grief is very real, but there's also hope. There's also confidence in your promises. And God, we know based on the authority of your word that Doton is more alive today than ever in your presence and that one day we will be reunited with him because of your grace and mercy in our lives. And so we bless his name We thank you for the legacy that he leaves behind, for the ministry that he had here at Connect. Oh God, would it continue to bear fruit long into the future? And God, we pray for his friends and his family, most importantly, his wife and children, who are experiencing the greatest heartache a person can know. Oh, Spirit of God, would you meet them today? Would you give them your love Would you shower them with your presence? Would they know and experience your peace? And as they grieve, would they carry the hope of eternity with them? And God, I pray for each of us that we would recognize we'll all have a chapter 42. But God, we can't have a 43 in you. And so I'm praying for each and every person that's here in the audience that doesn't have a relationship with you through Jesus. They've never accepted Christ as their Lord. They've never had their sins forgiven. They've never had their eternity transformed. Today, would they cry out to you? God, would your spirit move upon them in such a way that they confess their faith? They confess their sins. They receive forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus. Oh God, may this difficult event bear eternal fruit. And God, I pray that you would bless us as we think about our own end. That God, we would make the most of the time, the days that you've given us. And that God, we would do the things that truly matter. We would experience your blessings and God, share those blessings with the world around us. This is our calling. It's our joy. It's our privilege, Jesus, to live as your people, to receive whatever it is that you say is good for us. And God, to glorify you in the middle of it. So whatever my brothers and sisters are experiencing today, God, may they trust in you. May you see them through it. May you save them not out of their trials, but God, through their trials. Because of Jesus, who tasted death for us, but triumphed in resurrection power. Oh, may that hope sustain us, nourish us, and keep us, God. Until our own chapter 43. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Keep the Ajabade family in your prayers. And for all of you, my encouragement is to keep your present circumstances in the proper perspective no matter what you're going through. And I know some of you are going through hardships that I can only imagine. God sees you. He knows your hardship. He hasn't forgotten or abandoned you any more than he did Job or any more than he has Doton. And if you'll draw near to him, he will draw near to you as well.